Welcome to the Ministry Podcast. It is such a privilege that you would tune in. All of my content is designed to bring hope to the dreamers and doers that Jesus offers us a better way to life and Jesus offers us a better way to lead. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Amen. You guys may be seated. I'd love for you to open your Bibles. It'll also be on the screen to Ephesians chapter 2. We're continuing in our collection of talks called Numanity. And, uh, you know, tonight we won't just talk about how we're sinful and dead and all that stuff like we said last week. There's a lot of hope in today's passage. And so, again, Ephesians chapter 2, we ended at verse 4. And so we're going to pick up right where we left off in verse 5 and following. Verse 5, it says, God made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. Look at this. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, which is called ascension, a doctrine we, is often overlooked, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable, can't measure it, the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. This is the verse we all know. For uh, you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. In verse 10, I feel every time we share the gospel, this should be included. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. God bless the reading of this word. I want you to write this down. This is kind of the main idea that I got from this passage. When your perks become your purpose, you will lack depth beneath the surface. I think it's no, um, it's, it's not hidden that we live in an anxious society. I know you're probably tired of me saying it because I mention it all the time. And all I see every time I turn on the news, every time I see what's going on, we are a people who seemingly lack a lot of depth. It doesn't take much to shake us. And I would argue part of it is because we have made our perks our purpose, which is why we lack depth beneath the surface. Yesterday was July 4th, and I'm super grateful to be free. We're in the land of the free because of the brave. And I love that, and I'm grateful for that. But here's the sad reality of human history. Every time prosperity comes, we tend to pervert the things that the men before us even fought for. Here's a quote that I've always loved. Hard times create strong men. Strong men create good times. Good times create weak men. And weak men create hard times. I think it's the reality where we're in today, and I think we're going to have a lot of hope in, 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 in this passage. But the reality is, is we've taken a lot of things that are perks, that are, that are joys, but it's always these perks are designed in order to serve a greater purpose. But what has happened is we've taken those as our ultimate purpose. In other words, beautiful things like freedom. Freedom is a great servant, but a terrible master. Individualism is a great servant, but a terrible master. Most historians um, argue, really in America, culture took a dramatic shift in the 1960s. This was the moment where um, some scholars call it hyper-individualism or society of the self, where everything became about self-expression, do what's best for yourself. And uh, that really took root in the 60s, and it's becoming more and more apparent in in all of culture uh, today. 
And so David Brooks, he wrote this really good book. It's called Second Mountain. And he argues in his book, it was written before coronavirus, but it seems even more apparent now. But he mentions that we have really made hyper-individualism the, the goal. The telos is kind of the biblical word for it. This is why we do everything is hyper-individualism. And he argues because of that, there has been a lot of problems in our society. He has this quote. He says, a half century of emancipation has made individualism which was the heaven for our grandparents, into our hell. In his book, and I think it's helpful, I want us to see, he, he mentions, and I think it, it's really applicable today, there are four problems that arise when our purpose is rooted in hyper-individualism. Number one, the loneliness crisis. Have you noticed we are a lonely society? And I feel lonely right now. Y'all are quiet tonight. It's all right. The loneliness crisis. It actually, some stats, this was kind of shocking to me. 35% of Americans over the age of 45 are chronically lonely. And I know we love to make a big deal about millennials and Gen Z. We don't know what we're doing. But even older generations are lonely. The sad fact and reality is, especially among teenagers, for teenagers in the last 10 years alone, suicide rates have gone up 70%. Why? People feel alone. They're lonely. And here's the thing. That's what individualism brings. It's in its very definition. When you're not willing to sacrifice and do things for the other, you'll wind up being all by yourself. The second thing it generates, and I think it's really helpful for us to know and understand the culture, is distrust. You have distrust. See, in the generation past, they used to assume if you served your organization, the organization will serve you back, right? JFK, ask not what the country can do for you, but what? What you can do for your country. And everybody is like, ah, that's amazing. That doesn't work today. How come? Now, today, we are operating under this assumption that if you give to an organization, all they will do is take. We have lost complete trust to authority. We have lost trust to organizations. And honestly, part of it is because of the fault of organizations and those in authority abusing power. But at the same time, distrust never leads to anything good. Here's the third reason, um, third problem that, that David Brooks points out in his book. We now have a crisis of meaning. A crisis of meaning. He has this quote, so good. It says, when you take away a common moral order, and tell everybody to find their own definition of the mystery of life, most people will come up empty. They will not have a compelling story that explains the meaning of their life in those moments, get this, when life gets hard. Welcome to 2020. And again, I've been saying this week after week, but I, I've been trying to find a way to say, God, thank you, because you are exposing our false idols. You are exposing the reality that without you, God, we really don't have an answer. Here's the fourth thing David Brooke argues. It creates tribalism. Tribalism is where you try to make those easy categories. There's good people and there's bad people. It's us versus them. I made a joke this morning. My dad had his face mask on. So heart cry is also requiring upon entrance and exit that we put on their mask. And, and so my dad was mentioning it's such a, you know, it, it really stinks. And tribalism today, it's political. So if you have your mask on, it means you're a Democrat. If you have it off, it means you're a Republican. And my dad was saying it with it on one ear. And I said, and, and you're an independent, I suppose, because you kind of have it on. I thought it was good. And then he stole my joke. He acted like it was his at heart. I was, you know, whatever. It's, it's all good. Uh, I guess I should be grateful. <laughs> but tribalism. And here's the reality. Tribalism sells. 
Tribalism, I talked to Caleb about this a lot. We can make our church grow faster if we gave into the fire of tribalism. We're not those people. Come here. But the reality is community, biblical community, is based off of mutual affection. Tribalism is based off of mutual hatred. Tribalism's easier, but at what point? At what cost? So here's the problem we're in. And I would argue it's because we have served at most the God, the purpose of hyper-individualism. And when your perks become your purpose, you'll lack depth beneath the surface. And here's why I have been in mourning and, and grieving all week. Because as I read this passage and I think about the way some people share the gospel, 2, 8 through 9 is like the zinger. It's the one you bring up for by grace. Oh, it's amazing, Right. And I wonder if we have packaged our gospel to answer and to tell somebody, you want individualism? Perfect. Jesus can give it to you. And when we do that, we wind up having a church that's also lonely. We wind up having a church that's also distressful. I'm so grateful for our community. Some of y'all did not agree with this mask thing, but you know what I love? You talk to me about it. That that's, shows an element of trust. That shows I want to learn. I want to figure out your reasoning. I was so blessed by that this week. But we have churches because we're saying, oh, you want hyper-individualism? Here, let's tell them that Jesus gives it to them so that they can come in the door and get saved. And we wonder why some of us are Christians and have a crisis of meaning. Some of us are Christians and yet I am broken. Looking on social media, they are just stoking the fire of tribalism. What if... It's because we've always assumed we know what salvation is. We've always looked at this passage. It says, for you are saved. And we've said, okay, we know what saved is. Saved means I could do what I want, when I want, how I want to. Jesus, how can you offer that for me? But what if it's something different? I want us to look at that tonight. Let's pray. Father God, I ask you that tonight the passage preaches itself. God, I ask you that this text, you would show what it says and also show what it doesn't say. God, I pray that we be not just hearers only, deceiving ourselves, but give us the grace and the ability to be doers of the word. In Jesus' name I pray. The church says, amen. amen, amen. So Ephesians 1 has been all about our possessions that we have in Christ, and we've talked about that. I would argue Ephesians 2 is about our purpose in Christ, okay? So for us to understand the purpose of salvation, I want us to, to answer it threefold. Number one, what is the what of salvation? Number two, what is the how of salvation, which is usually the only thing we focus on? And number three is what is the why of salvation? The what, the how, the why, okay? So number one is the what. Let's read again verse five. God made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. We said this last week. It's not the gospel's making about bad people good. It's about bringing dead people to life. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus so in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Those few verses alone show us the what of salvation. We are regenerated. We are literally made new. Number two, we are saved. We'll look at what that means. We are resurrected. We talk about the resurrected Jesus, but we have to talk also about how we are resurrected. Also, we, we, we ascend. We ascend to sit with Jesus in the heavens. When is the last time you shared the gospel and shared that part? But the gospel is so rich. But here's, I was thinking, what is the one thing when we read this passage and we tell somebody, here's the good news. What do we tell them? You are forgiven. Now, 
is the word forgiveness in this passage? But we just assume, we just say, see, you're forgiven. Now, is forgiveness implied? I would say absolutely. But it's so much more than that. I got to preach uh, for Heart Cry this morning, and I gave the joke, and I honestly thought about going to the parking lot and checking, because I was going to talk bad about a bumper sticker, and I thought, wait, what if somebody has that bumper sticker, right? I, I don't need that kind of pain in my life. So, so anyways, but I, and I, the, the chances were high, because especially in the Heart Cry Church, there's a lot of cowboys, and the sticker I'm talking about is a cowboy kneeling before the cross, and it says, not perfect, just forgiven. I hate that sticker. <laughs> Why? Because... I think Jesus came for a whole lot more than just forgiveness. And when, why do we say that? Why do we share the gospel? Why do we assume it's just about forgiveness? Because we can still be individuals and we'll just have a Jesus who forgives us as we keep doing what we want to do. Next point, ready? God's grace is not just for transactional forgiveness but for transformational fullness. I think that's the point this passage is making so far. This word saved, it's a Greek word sozo, and ways to describe saved or sozo uh, is much more than just forgiveness, which again, I don't want, like forgiveness is huge. I'm so grateful I'm forgiven, but I'm also grateful it's more than that. And the number one definition is actually to be healed. Can you imagine if we read that? It says you are healed by grace. I think that would hit some of us different. Another thing it says is to be made whole, which is why I reference fullness, is to be delivered and to be set free. Theologically, what this means, we are saved from condemnation and the penalty of sin in our past. Theologically, it means we are saved from domination and the power of sin in the present. And also, we are saved from ruination and the presence of sin in the future. When we're in heaven and the new heavens, the new earth, sin will not be present. Now, of course, forgiveness is included, but it is not limited to. Why? God's grace is not just for transactional forgiveness, but for transformational fullness. This word grace, it's a Greek word, charis. Actually, my daughter's middle name is Faith Charis. And uh, Dallas Willard, if you know me for any length of time, you'll know he's my favorite. And he has this definition of grace. It says, grace is God doing in us and for us what we could not do ourselves. Doing in us and for us what we could not do ourselves. He goes on to say, he says, saints burn far more grace than sinners ever could. I love that. I love that. Grace is for every day. Not just the first day and the last day. But we assume that it's just for the last day when we just make the gospel simply about forgiveness. The what is so much more. If you actually think about the way people present the gospel, the way we assume this passage, what it means, we would actually assume that when we talk about grace, what we're really talking about is mercy, right? Because mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. And in many ways, I think we've really, we need a, um, a revival of the word grace in our own life. David Benner, he wrote this great book. It's called Surrender to Love. I, I suggest it to everyone. Little, little book. I suggest big ones. This one's little, I promise. This book, he has this quote, and I think it's so good about grace. It should be on the screen. It says, grace is totally alien to human psychology. Encountering such a God of grace is terrifying. Because encountering perfect love, look, is an invitation to abandon ego, hyper-individualism. A God of our own making would be much less terrifying. But 
Such a God could not offer me what I most deeply need. Release from my fears and healing of my brokenness. I wonder if we just assume that we're forgiven, but we're not set free from our fears and we always are broken. The gospel, the what of salvation is complete holistic healing. And I'm not arguing we're not going to be perfect on this side of heaven, but I do think we can get a whole lot closer than you and I assume. The Western church, I'm super grateful, the gospel here in the West, we really emphasize the legal side of salvation, which is justification, which is when God looks at you, if you believed in Jesus, legally, God sees you as righteous. And this is so important. It was like the birth of the Reformation. It's all about the legal ramifications. It's a courtroom. It's amazing. What I love about the Eastern church, I'm learning more and more, they emphasize more the life of Jesus. So we like to think about the legal side. Their whole thing is they're following Jesus and they are pumped because they know they will continue to look more like Jesus. And what a blessing if we learn from our Eastern brothers and sisters and we actually realize that we can hold the gospel tension in both. It is both a legal transaction that happens immediately, but we actually look more and more like him practically. I need to keep going. Grace is jet fuel for believers. I love that. It's not a transaction. Transactions life on my terms. It's transformation, which means it's life on God's terms. Now that's the what. Let's look at the how. Verses eight and nine. I've always said these are like my favorite verses. Look, for you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift. Not from works, so that no one can brag or boast. Super important here, the the order. It does not say, for you are saved by faith through grace. If you are saved by faith through grace, what that means is you were smart enough to get blessed, to, to be graceable. It means you've, in, in essence, been able to work for your salvation. Now, what's the problem with that? First of all, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. There's nothing you could do to work for it, so good luck working. It'll never work. The other thing, though, is actually leads to one of two roads. And a lot of works, all the works-based religions always lead to these two roads, self-righteousness or self-rejection. Self-righteousness, I am smarter than you. I have figured this thing out. I am better than you. I always love to tell our people, we're not better than anybody, but we sure are better off because of Jesus, amen? But, but self-righteousness, it's that stuck-upness, it's that pharisaical attitude, but self-rejection. So many friends of mine grew up in a faith where it was so much about your intellectual ability, your ability to never doubt. And what happens is you begin to feel deficient because you doubt. Let me encourage you, you are not saved by your certainty. Let me put it this way. Here's the next point. Our faith is not about passing a test, but about placing your trust. This Greek word faith is pistis, which means strong reliance or trust. Another word that I'm growing more and more fond of to describe faith is also loyalty or faithfulness. What implies here is faith is not an act of the brain. It's a part of it, but it's actually an act of the whole person. In other words, you are not saved by your certainty, but an overall allegiance to King Jesus. Y'all ever seen Prince of Egypt? Anybody? Disney fans. All right. Sounds good. Three of us. Now, Prince of Egypt, great movie growing up. Loved it. Now, here's the thing. What what they have, I actually don't even remember if they show that part in Prince of Egypt because it's pretty gory. Anyways, they have, I think they, they should, uh, they have what's called a Passover, right? So there's this announcement. Moses told everybody, hey, we need to put blood on the doorpost. And then if we put blood on the doorpost, the firstborn son will be saved. But those who do not have blood on their doorpost, their firstborn will be killed. That's a picture of the gospel, the cross, the blood. We are saved. It's so good. It'll preach every day of the week. So then imagine, though, there's two guys getting together. 
And they, and they say, hey, did you hear about what Moses said? Yeah, I got a boy. You got a boy. Let's figure this out. Me, I would have just slept the whole night because I ain't got no boys. I would have been like, whatever. Good luck, y'all. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Anyways, there's some advantages to having three girls, okay? But imagine those two guys saying, one of them is just like, yeah, of course. All I need is this blood. Just killed the lamb. Got it over the door. Uh, he is not sleeping with me. He's a teenager, and they haven't invented Axe body spray yet, So, which I actually think is worse than anything. But anyways, he's sleeping in his own room. I'm going to sleep well tonight. The other guy, his neighbor said, man, I don't know. I'm going to do the blood, but man, I think he's going to sleep with me. I just don't feel good about this. I'm not going to sleep a wink. That next morning, whose son passed away? Neither, because it was all about the blood on the doorpost. You are not saved by your intellect. You are not saved by your certainty. You are saved by the sufficiency of King Jesus. Amen? Amen. That is such good news because that means I have room to doubt. I have room to struggle and to work through these things. If we make it about our intellect, the kingdom of self is still intact. If we make it about our intellect, we only follow God when it makes sense. But then 2020 came And there's a lot of things we have to do that don't make sense anymore, amen? We have to follow God even when it doesn't make sense, which is what the true definition of faith is. Put it down this way. It's not on your screen, but it should be. If you pick and choose what to follow, you'll have a faith that's fake and hollow. If you pick and choose what you want to believe in this book, right? That doesn't rhyme though, so let me say it my way. If you pick and choose what to follow, you'll have a faith that's fake and and hollow. John Ortberg, uh, he has a book, really good book. It's called Eternity is Now in Session. And he makes this case that the quote should be on the screen. I think it's so good. He says, can you imagine Jesus himself teaching this? Believing all that I teach is true, that's optional. Believing that I can run your life and allowing me to do so, that's optional. Intending to actually obey me, don't worry, that's optional. As long as you believe that my death paid for your sins, you don't need to worry about doing what I've said as far as heaven is concerned. How often is that the gospel presentation? Friends, there is so much more to the goodness of Jesus that we miss out on if that is our definition of the gospel. Dallas Willard puts it this way. He says, there is no problem in human life that apprenticeship to Jesus cannot solve. I love that. See, I'm learning more and more. Jesus is a beautiful savior, but he's also a brilliant teacher. You know, he's got this whole thing called life figured out. Every time I follow him, I'm like, oh, that actually does work. Oh, wow, he was right. Those who try to find their life will lose it, but those who lose her life for my sake will find it. That actually works. He didn't just come to die for me and raise again. Jesus offers us a better way to life. Yes and amen, amen, but he also offers us a better way to live. I love that. I love that I can trust my King Jesus with everything. Jesus is the way, Jesus is the truth, and Jesus is the life. So that's the what of salvation, which is grace, and we're being saved, we're healed holistically. The how of salvation, our faith's not about passing a test, it's about placing our trust. But now let's look at the why. And I would argue this is the biggest one we miss out on, and it is absolutely what we need most today in 2020. Ephesians 2.10 For we are his workmanship, which another translation, masterpiece, which as an artist, Caleb, because that's what I call myself, um, as an artist, I like masterpiece a little bit more, but CSB is a good translation. For we are his masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for good works, 
which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. This masterpiece, workmanship, the Greek word is poema, which is actually where we get the word poem. And it's this idea that God brings into existence his creation and he enjoys it. He takes pride in it. He loves it. And so it invokes joy in God's heart. We said this a couple weeks ago, but essentially with salvation, when we are believers in him, God has forgotten our shortcomings and he is infatuated with who we're becoming. And the beautiful thing is he he is creating us to look more and more like him. And it's by his jet fuel, by his grace that we're able to do it. And so we're able to do these things, become more and more like him. Here's the last point. Look, our purpose is not just about receiving love, but becoming love. Hyper-individualism wants to stop at receiving love. But that's not true love. The gospel says receive love and become love. Create in Christ Jesus what? For good works. People say, oh, I don't want to talk about good works because I don't want to earn it. No, he already, he already talked about that, man. He said, you're saved by grace through faith. It's not of your works. However, now that you are saved and living in faith, let's get to work. Martin Luther, I love it. He says, God doesn't need your good deeds, but your neighbor does. What we need is to become love. First John three eighteen. it says, let us not love with word, but in deed and truth. The church is actually the physical manifestation of God's grace and love. The reality is God supplies the grace and love for us to be gracious and loving. I know what God's been doing in my own heart. He's trying more and more as I continue to let him and give into his grace. He's purifying my motivation as I serve others. I know for me, I need God. I need his spirit to give me perseverance when sabotage comes. I know for me, I, I desperately need his patience. And I can't work that up in myself. But when I allow God to work in and through me, I am able to be patient to myself and to others. He gives us the words when we need them. Get this. He tells us to shut up when we need to shut up. Amen? Amen. This is the God of grace. He enables us to become love. But we cannot become love if we're still holding on to individualism. When your perks become your purpose, you'll lack depth beneath the surface. And friends, I would just, I'd be so blessed at Passion Creek if we become a people of immense depth. Psalm 112. I need to memorize that. I'm so sorry. But Psalm 112, one of my favorites, it talks about the man of God who hears bad news and he's not shaken. Can you imagine if that's what Passion Creek became? Because there's bad news every day. But we, do, we don't lack depth beneath the surface because we're here for a greater purpose that has an answer for suffering that is willing to sacrifice because life isn't about the perks. I love the cherry on top, but that stinks if the whole thing's a cherry. Actually, cherries are good. Another illustration. You know what I'm saying? We need to realize there is a greater purpose. I put this in my notes. We are his masterpiece who will go after peace. What is the church's job? It's shalom. It's to bring that peace, that flourishing into this world like God always intended. For us to do that, we have to have the right master. And his, his name is not individualism, it's King Jesus. Oh, that we would not be shaken about today. If we read that and recognized the, the what the how and the why of salvation, I believe at our church we would not have a loneliness crisis. 
I mean, the gospel literally says, I'm going to be seated with Jesus in the heavenlies, that his love can never leave me nor forsake me. I am not lonely, and I have the people of God with me. We don't have a distress issue. Why? Jesus is worthy of all of my trust. He will never let me down. In fact, I trust Jesus more than I trust myself. He says this are his way, I'm doing his way. This is the way he loves, I'm doing it the way he loves, even when it doesn't feel good. We don't have a crisis of meaning. The more the world is a mess, the more we realize we got work to do. We know what to do. We have a gospel. We have a peace. We, we know these answers. And, and in 2020, in a weird way, we're like, yes, we know what to do. And we don't have the problem with tribalism. Come next week, we'll look at that. Verses 11 through 22 literally nails it. It's like, David Brooks, did you, like, how did you see that? Right? The four problems. But we have unity in Christ. We are one body with one purpose. Jesus, Jesus really is smart. <laughs> he really had this thing figured out. And so my question as I end is, have you surrendered to the grace of God? Are you willing to give up your own agenda? And give completely into his. It's not about you getting enough intellect and figuring this thing out and being strong enough. But I just pray right now you recognize the grace is already on offer. And what we're doing is saying, God, I trust you. God, I need you. You have an answer for when times are successful. And you have an answer when we are in suffering. Again, I praise God in a weird way for 2020 because I think he has removed the illusion of control. Individualism was never good for us. And may God show us that he has done a lot more for us than just forgiving us. May we become a people of love.